Thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. On this episode of the podcast, we will continue our exploration of the international tax considerations and proposals from Treasury's recently announced Fiscal Year 2022 Green Book. Today, we focus on the Green Book's proposals that are particularly important to U.S. multinationals with foreign operations, its outbound proposals. I'm excited to welcome back Danielle Rolfus and Doug Palms for round two. Danielle is a partner and co-leader in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice, and Doug Palms is a principal in the same group. Both Danielle and Doug have formally served as International Tax Counsel in the Office of Tax Policy at the Treasury Department, and each is formally my boss at Treasury. Danielle and Doug, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Gary. It's great to be back. Yes, Gary. It's nice to be back with with both of you. Danielle, in our last episode of the podcast, you put the Green Book proposals in the context of the work at the OECD. Could you remind us how the Biden proposals interact with BEPS 2.0? particularly the Green Book's outbound proposals? Well, as we discussed last week, the Green Book does have a lot of interaction with the OECD work on Pillar 2, which includes both an income inclusion rule, or IIR, which is a CFC regime under which the ultimate parent jurisdiction would impose a minimum tax on the low-taxed foreign income earned in each jurisdiction, as well as an undertaxed payment rule, which is intended to be a backstop to that IIR, such that the undertax payment rule would only apply to deny deductions in situations where a group includes low-taxed income that is not subject to an IIR. Last week, we were focused on SHIELD, which is the U.S. version of that undertax payment rule that was developed at the OECD. There is no doubt that SHIELD was designed based on the detailed work that was done at the OECD. Though, as we discussed last week, there are, of course, a number of uniquely punitive aspects of SHIELD. This week, we focus on, among other things, the Green Book proposals to revise guilty. Here, it is the other way around. The OECD's income inclusion rule, no doubt, was inspired in part by the TCJ's enactment of guilty. However, the OECD work diverged from guilty in two important respects, among others. First, the OECD income inclusion rule applies a country-by-country approach, and I think that's intended to focus a little more on the incentives that a multinational would have to profit shift on the margin. Second, the income inclusion rule broadens guilty's tax-free return on tangible assets to also include a return on payroll. It's often referred at the OECD as the substance-based carve-out. This substance-based carve-out at the OECD is very important to countries that view the income inclusion rule as being about remaining BEPS risks of profit shifting without substance. It's not so important to countries that instead view Pillar 2 as being about ending the race to the bottom on rates, which is how the Biden administration talks about the Pillar 2 work. Those countries would generally prefer no carve-out. 
It's also worth noting here that a substance-based carve-out is also important to help reconcile CFC rules that turn on the tax rate with the EU treaty. The EU treaty guarantees the free movement of capital, and that freedom has caused difficulties for some EU countries that have tried to implement CFC rules. For example, it is assumed that it would be problematic for Germany to apply a pure rate-based CFC regime to all income that's earned in Hungary, which happens to have a 9% statutory rate. That kind of application without any exception for there being substance in Hungary would be viewed as impinging on that freedom of capital. But coming back to the Green Book, the Green Book's proposed change to make guilty operate on a country-by-country basis would align guilty with that aspect of the Pillar 2 approach. But to put this in perspective, just as guilty was not itself inspired by the OECD's work, I think it's worth noting that candidate Biden proposed converting guilty to country-by-country approach, in addition to proposing raising the effective rate to a 21% rate and eliminating QBI. I think these proposals by candidate Biden originated as pure domestic policy. But I don't think these policies were particularly inspired by the OECD work on Pillar 2. This is clear for the proposed 21% rate and the elimination of QBI, which diverge from the direction of travel at the OECD. But regardless of the original intent, converting guilty to a C-by-C regime, country-by-country regime, will make it easier for the inclusive framework to bless guilty as a good income inclusion regime. And it allows the administration to go on the offense to pursue other interests in the OECD work, like pushing for a higher minimum rate and adjusting the scope of Pillar 1. But maybe more importantly in terms of the interactions, the administration has itself responded to domestic concerns that its proposed changes to guilty would make it harder for U.S. companies to compete with foreign companies that are not subject to a similar regime by pointing to the need for the OECD to reach consensus on a strong minimum tax in order to end the race to the bottom. Thus, while I think Biden's guilty proposals originated as pure domestic policy and were not much influenced by the goings-on at the OECD, at this point, I think the Biden administration itself has made its proposals to raise the rate on guilty, convert to a country-by-country system, inextricably intertwined with the OECD's work in light of the competitiveness concerns that have been raised and the administration's own response to those competitiveness of pointing to the need for the Pillar 2 work to succeed. Speaking of the OECD agreed minimum rate for Pillar 2, as we discussed on the last episode of the podcast, the G7 recently agreed among themselves on a global minimum tax rate of at least 15%. It still remains to be seen whether the countries of the G20 and the OECD inclusive framework agree on this or another rate. While the 15% rate has been articulated as a floor, like an MC Escher picture, the floor appears to be the ceiling. Danielle, do you think that a 21% guilty rate can be maintained if the global min rate remains only 15%? Just to start, I agree that the G7 agreement on quote, at least 15%, end quote, for the Pillar 2 rate, as a practical matter, 
increases the odds of a global agreement on 15%, but I don't think anyone really sees that rate getting higher than 15%. And just a reminder, Democrats can't pocket a 15% global minimum rate for Pillar 2 just yet. They still need to get agreement at the G20, which includes China, whose generous R&D incentives may actually make a 15% rate a reach for some Chinese companies. Pillar 2 has generally been understood that we don't need all countries to implement Pillar 2 for Pillar 2 to work, as long as enough countries, you know, adopt income inclusion rules and enough of the big source countries adopt that backstop to the income inclusion rule, which is the undertaxed payment rule. However, in order to make Pillar 2 a success, it is generally thought that the big residence countries in Europe need to be able to implement Pillar 2. And for them to be able to implement Pillar 2, it is widely understood that would have to be done through an EU directive, which does require consensus of all EU countries, including Ireland and Hungary, who have rates below 15%. So you know, nobody should pocket the 15% global rate that was agreed to among seven countries that all themselves have statutory rates well above 15%. Turning back to the guilty rate, even apart from what's going on at the OECD, I never thought a 21% guilty rate was particularly likely. Just like most saw the proposed 28% headline rate as more of an opening bid. Still, the general view is that if the Democrats are successful in passing a tax bill this year, it would include a meaningful increase in the guilty rate. While the OECD agreed rate is certainly not a ceiling on what an individual country could choose to do. Now that the Biden administration has linked the two publicly and acknowledged the competitiveness issues of having a U.S. guilty rate that diverges significantly from the OECD income inclusion rate, there does seem to be a political limit to how big that difference can be without losing the support of moderate Democrats. So I guess to bring it all together, my two cents, if the global rate does end up at 15%, or at least it looks like the global rate will end up at 15%, then I think somewhere around 18% is the ceiling for guilty. And it may very well be that moderates will want the two rates closer than that. I don't want our listeners to lose sight as well of the question of the 20% haircut on foreign tax credits that applies under current law for foreign tax credits that relate to guilty. If you consider that haircut, an 18% rate would really require 22.5% foreign ETR to not owe minimum tax. That may make one question whether an 18% guilty rate with if you retain the full 20% haircut is really realistic. The Biden administration appears to be attempting to rebrand guilty as the global minimum tax, as evidenced by the frequent use of the term in the Green Book. Doug, what other changes to guilty has the Green Book proposed? And does the change to a global minimum tax have some deeper meaning? Uh, for one thing, Gary, calling it a global minimum tax drops the intangible element in the guilty acronym. And that's consistent with the fact that the Green Book proposes the elimination of Cuba and drops the deemed intangible income concept. Then in addition, the Green Book proposes two changes to the definition of tested income. One, the elimination of foreign oil and gas extraction income as an exception to tested income. In addition, 
the Green Book would propose to eliminate the guilty high tax exception, and along with that, the subpart F high tax exception when determining tested income. And finally, and probably most notably, is the change, as Danielle had talked about, to a country by country computation for guilty. And the country by country aspect comes up in two ways. Firstly, as uh, Section 904 foreign tax credit limitation concept going to country by country. And secondly, in the actual computation of guilty, the proposal would not allow tested losses in one jurisdiction to offset tested income in another jurisdiction. The TCGA was sold as a territorial system, but that was always a questionable proposition. Given the limited categories of income excluded from guilty, the Biden administration would undo even the appearance of a territorial system by eliminating these limited exclusions and would adopt an unabashed full inclusion system albeit at a slightly lower rate. But the Green Book would also apply the 904 limitation with respect to guilty foreign tax credits on a country-by-country basis. Danielle, how would taxpayers be impacted by this change? Creating separate per-country guilty baskets without making any other changes to the guilty foreign tax credit regime would produce very harsh results and some pretty common fact patterns. To start, the TCJA eliminated foreign tax credit carry forwards for guilty. For the other baskets, including income earned through foreign branches, you can carry foreign tax credits back one year and forward 10. There are many situations where this lack of guilty carry forwards can produce unfair double tax. For example, timing differences between when income is recognized for U.S. and foreign tax purposes, such as, you know, say a foreign jurisdiction has a mark-to-market regime. Although the taxpayer may have been excess credit in the year the gain was marked for foreign purposes, if there's no guilty FTC carry-forward, there will be no FTC carry-forward to the year the gain is realized and recognized for U.S. purposes. It's easy to see that these kind of concerns are exacerbated in a country-by-country world where you don't have the benefit of blending. Even when the foreign and U.S. systems miraculously line up so that foreign taxes accrue in the same year as the related tested income, because guilty is a foreign tax credit-based system, as you've observed, this income is included on the U.S. return. You're just relying on a foreign tax credit to, in effect, shelter some of the high-taxed income that's pulled into the U.S. return. Because guilty is an FTC-based system rather than a top-up tax like the income inclusion rule, taxpayers can be subject to double tax in a multitude of situations due to the application of the foreign tax credit limitation in a world without any carryovers. For example, a taxpayer cannot claim any foreign tax credit in a year when it owes no U.S. tax, maybe because of a net operating loss carry forward, or maybe because of a current year overall loss. In these cases, the guilty inclusion will offset the loss, and you get no Section 250 deduction in this context because the 250 deduction is limited by taxable income, and the related foreign taxes will just disappear. So that taxpayer that couldn't access the foreign tax credit in the year of the guilty inclusion and the guilty inclusion offset domestic losses or a net operating loss carry forward was taxed at the full U.S. headline rate with no offset at all for foreign tax credits. 
There may also be less capacity to use guilty foreign tax credits if there are losses in another basket, such as the branch basket, because such unrelated losses first zero out other foreign source income, reducing or eliminating the guilty limitation. Although this is meant to just be a timing issue and subsequent branch income would be recaptured as guilty, it will be too late to save the related guilty credits. And so again, we see double tax. So because there's no guilty foreign tax credit carry forward, if you can't use your guilty FTCs in a year, the taxpayer's out of luck and may be subject to double tax. In addition, if you switch over and think about losses, there is no provision in guilty to take into account a guilty loss as an offset to future income. At least under the current system, you can offset a guilty loss against guilty income from a different country. But under this future system, if you are net loss in a particular jurisdiction, you would not be able to offset it in computing your guilty inclusions from other countries. And there'd be no provision to carry that loss forward in computing your guilty for the lost country in a future year. Obviously, foreign tax regimes allow loss carry forwards. As a result, a taxpayer with a year one loss that offsets year two income under the foreign rules could end up owing substantial guilty tax, even though they are flat across the two years. The TCJA drafters defended this harsh annual approach by asserting that the ability to average across countries would mitigate mismatches that might occur due to timing differences and losses. But at least for companies that are operating across many jurisdictions, the odds were reduced of having a guilty loss be wasted and the ability to cross credit as well as the lower rate, which left many taxpayers chronically excess credit and guilty, did help ameliorate the timing differences and other idiosyncratic results from isolated losses. But in the context of a country by country regime, there really is no policy justification for such a harsh annual approach making no allowances whatsoever to smooth things out over the years assures that some foreign income will routinely be double taxed. Any indication in the Green Book or otherwise that Congress might reconsider permitting carryovers of FTCs and or tested losses to mitigate these harsh results? No, there was no indication of that in the Green Book. And frankly, I was surprised when the Green Book proposed no changes to Guilty's harsh annual approach in light of converting to a country-by-country country system. The Green Book proposes to simply layer on top of that regime a C-by-C approach without providing any new rules. One of the administration's rebuttals seems to be that the TCJA should be blamed for these harsh aspects. And I do agree with that. But I don't agree that it isn't now this Treasury's job to address these concerns in the context of doubling down on them by proposing to convert guilty to a country by country regime. I also think it's important that the OECD version, the income inclusion rule, makes significant accommodations to account for timing differences. For example, the Pillar 2 report anticipates allowing unlimited loss carry forwards and contemplates a number of adjustments so that the income inclusion rule base would align more closely to the foreign tax base. That includes adjustments to align with the local tax rules for depreciation and amortization and the treatment of stock-based comp. 
So they're going out of their way at the OECD to address some of these timing differences from when the foreign jurisdiction recognizes income relative to the IFRS financial statements. Granted, it's early days and the Green Book hasn't worked out all the details, but these are really important details. The administration will face a lot of criticism that a country-by-country regime is too complex and anti-competitive. I was surprised they did not do more in the Green Book to begin the work of making a C-by-C regime work, which requires mitigating unfair double taxation that follows from an annual country-by-country approach. With my policy hat on, I wish they had begun that important work here. Policymakers should be thinking now about how to address these criticisms regarding the harshness of annual accounting as companies will be bringing very sympathetic case studies to their representatives on the Hill. U.S. companies that are assessing their policy positions should not focus solely on the rate differential between the OECD's income inclusion rule and the guilty regime, but should also focus on some of these other differences in terms of the risk for double tax. So the Green Book is indeed light on the detail for how a C-by-C regime would be implemented, but one design detail that is apparent is that Biden's Treasury has opted for implementing a C-by-C approach through separate FTC baskets for each country, as opposed to the alternative approach put forward by Senator Wyden. Wyden would, in in effect, implement a synthetic C-by-C regime by making the guilty high-tax exception mandatory and setting the high-tax cutoff rate at the guilty rate. Under this approach, there would be no cross-crediting between jurisdictions, since, by definition, any country throwing off excess credits would be treated as high-tax and excluded from guilty. The administration did not give any reason in the Green Book for having rejected that approach. Danielle, what are some of the implications of that design choice, and why might a taxpayer prefer the Biden C-by-C approach to the widened high-tax approach or vice versa? Well, ironically, in light of our prior discussion, one reason to prefer a more traditional separate basketing approach is that it's then easier to leverage existing mechanisms to accommodate timing differences. Such a system could easily be adjusted to allow foreign tax credit carry forwards for each separate country basket, since you are already having to keep track of each separate country separately. And the rules could be adjusted to address loss carry forwards as well. Think of our qualified deficit rules. Although the administration didn't propose any of that in the Green Book, they have indicated some sympathy towards the timing differences that we were just discussing. And I think by having gone with a separate basketing approach, they have set themselves up to maybe make some of those mechanics a little bit easier. It's harder to do to to ameliorate some of those timing difference concerns, some of those harsh annual effects under a high tax exception approach, since in that case, each country would have to be identified as high or low taxed in the current year. If you always exclude countries with excess credits that year, you end up with the same harsh results. So to accommodate timing differences and net operating losses in this type of system, I think you would have to determine whether a country is high or low taxed using some kind of multi-year averaging mechanism. That is similar to how Obama's top-up tax worked 
under that regime, which was, of course, just a proposal, never had to get to legislative text, the effective tax rate for purposes of computing the top-up tax was based on multi-year averaging. We don't really have any existing technology in the code for doing that kind of multi-year averaging. So it would have to be, if you went with a high tax exception approach and you wanted to ameliorate these concerns, you'd have to do more inventing out of whole cloth. One reason taxpayers may prefer a high tax exception approach is simply from a compliance perspective. There's not a separate foreign tax credit basket and associated form 1118 for each country in which that taxpayer operates. For many companies, they could be facing 160 separate guilty foreign tax credit baskets. And this arguably makes the high tax exception approach simpler from a compliance perspective. Moreover, like the knock-on consequences of having separate per-country baskets, if you have a separate basket for each country, taxpayers are going to need to separately allocate expenses to each country. And our current rules are really not particularly up for this task, since our current rules allocate, you know, for interest and stewardship based on chains of CFCs rather than on a country-by-country basis. More importantly, I like that a high-tax exception approach is not reliant on the availability of foreign tax credits to exclude the income of high-tax countries. It converts the U.S. to actually having an exemption system for income from high-tax countries, which ameliorates some of the concerns we discussed about foreign tax credits not being available when there are net operating losses or overall foreign losses or under current law for taxpayers that are stuck in beats crosshairs and have a punitive effect of claiming foreign tax credits. So I I think there's a lot to be said for the fact that the high tax exception approach would actually create a very significant amount of truly exempt income that doesn't rely on the foreign tax credit. You had mentioned the effect of expense allocation and apportionment for purposes of the FTC limitation. The Green Book also proposes to disallow under Section 265 U.S. level deductions that are allocable to CFC income exempt from U.S. tax or taxed by the U.S. at a preferred rate. How would this impact a U.S. multinational? These rules are going to primarily affect deductions on the U.S. return for interest and stewardship, as those are really the U.S. deductions that are typically allocated in part to the income of CFCs. When such expenses are allocable to guilty income, that is eligible for the reduced rate, the deduction would be haircut to account for the rate differential. So if the Section 250 deduction is 25%, you would lose 25% of your deduction. On the other hand, deductions that are allocable to exempt income, i.e. your income that's eligible for the participation exemption when you pay it up to 45 cap A, would be denied entirely. In an economic sense, this makes sense. Deduction should get the same treatment as the related income. But it's also worth noting that there are problems with our current rules for allocating interest when CFCs have their own debt. And the Green Book does not propose any fixes for this, even though the Obama Green Book acknowledged some of these issues and proposed to accelerate at least one fix to that problem. The Green Book, in my view, should at least have addressed that although recent statements by Treasury officials do suggest they're sympathetic to the point. 
There is also the point that regardless of what the economists say, other countries don't deny deductions that are allocable to foreign income generally. Some do haircut the, their participation exemption, say to you know just be 95% as a proxy for such deductions. Though my understanding is that you would need a significantly greater haircut, at least when interest rates are higher, to truly account for the deductions that are on the home country return that might relate to that foreign income. With respect to the complete denial of deductions allocable to exempt income, I think it's important here, you know, we've touched on this a number of times, but question, what is really the exempt income in the U.S. guilty system after you take into account the Biden reforms? He would repeal the high tax exceptions to guilty in subpart F and the exemption for QBI. Having done that, there's really very little exempt income. There could still be tested income that is reduced by same country tested losses. But I question whether it's really right to consider that income exempt, or should it be viewed more in the nature of income that is offset by a deduction? Under our current system, if that same country tested loss was in a different you know, CFC, it does create exempt earnings under Section 245 Cap A. And I am sorry to say that it, some early indications from the government is they may not be sympathetic on this point, or at least they've pushed back a little bit. So given the limited amount of exempt income that would be left if the Green Book proposals were enacted, it seems like the real bite of Section 265 would be with respect to income sheltered by the Section 250 guilty deduction, that, which again is 25% under this current set of proposals, but it is possible that that differential, the Section 250 deduction could grow, making it a bigger bite. One thing to reiterate here is that Section 265 is not a foreign tax credit provision. Although the foreign tax credit limitation can have a similar effect by disallowing foreign tax credits when U.S. expenses are allocated to a basket, Section 265 would disallow the deduction itself. Under current law, allocating expenses to guilty for taxpayers that are excess limit is not problematic. In contrast, under the Green Book proposal, in general, 25% of expenses allocated to guilty would be disallowed without regard to whether the taxpayer is excess limit and guilty. The Green Book also proposes a C by C approach for calculating the FTC limitation with respect to foreign branch income. Danielle, how does the proposal affect the foreign branch income limitation? Well, well first, just stepping back for a moment, the I was surprised to see that they propose country by country for branch, but I want to emphasize that it's just a foreign tax credit limitation here. In contrast to guilty, um, it, it, where in the context of guilty, losses from a CFC do not flow into the U.S. return. You only get the benefit of a guilty loss to the extent it offsets other guilty income. In the case of branches, because they are flow through onto the U.S. return, an overall branch loss offset can offset U.S. income. Um, or other inclusions on the U.S. return, and that's still true. So this is just a proposal to limit the foreign tax credit for branch income on a country-by-country basis. Because it would become a separate per-country foreign tax credit limitation for branches, though, it would be true that a branch loss that did offset income from another per-country branch basket would create a separate limitation loss. That applies whenever a loss in one basket offsets income in another basket. Thus, under current law, a separate limitation loss in the branch basket reduces the foreign source income in all other baskets proportionately, 
And then it's recaptured as future branch income is earned and treated as income in the other baskets. There is a question regarding how those separate limitation loss rules ought to apply to per country branch baskets. You could argue that instead of having a loss in one per country branch offset all other baskets proportionately, including all the guilty per country baskets proportionately, perhaps a priority should be given to having a separate limitation loss in the branch basket first offset other per country branch incomes to view it maybe as a little bit of a mini branch basket. That would be taxpayer favorable since there are foreign tax credit carry forwards for the branch basket and there are none for guilty such that it is very harsh when a separate limitation loss in the branch basket offsets guilty and there's no guilty foreign tax credit carry forward, there can be no benefit when you get the recapture of that separate limitation loss upon later earning branch income that gets recaptured as guilty. The Green Book doesn't propose a country by country approach for passive or general basket income, including subpart F income. Danielle, why is that? Doesn't that just incentivize taxpayers to affirmatively structure out of guilty or branch into subpart F? And is it possible that we could see a C by C approach applying to subpart F in the future? Well, this is not addressed in the Green Book as to why they decided to go country by country and branch, but not for general and passive. But it does not appear imminent that they would extend that country-by-country approach to branch to the other baskets. Personally, I was surprised they went there for branches, but I understand that that was something of a sticking point in the OECD discussions. I was, as you say, also surprised that they repealed the high tax exception for subpart F rather than making it mandatory. The Obama Green Book adopted the latter approach due to the concerns you note about affirmative subpart F planning. But here we have a Green Book that went the other way and repealed it completely. In this episode of the podcast, we've talked a lot about Pillar 2 of the BEPS 2.0 project. Doug, can you tell us a little bit about the Green Book's proposed FTC rule that references the income inclusion rule of Pillar 2? The Green Book discussion recognizes that changes like those described in the Pillar 2 blueprint, and in particular, the income inclusion rule, are, are expected to happen concurrently with these guilty proposed changes. So if you have a fact pattern, for instance, a, a sandwich structure where you have a foreign parent on top, an in, intermediate U.S. company, and that U.S. company owns CFCs, the Pillar 2 rules would give first dibs to the foreign parent to apply its income inclusion rule over the U.S. guilty rules. So the foreign parent gets first dibs. But currently, there's nothing in the guilty rules that would allow the foreign parent to get the first crack at it. So the Green Book proposal recognizes that that and says it would have the guilty regime take into account any foreign taxes paid by the foreign parent under a Pillar 2 compliant income inclusion rule, assuming a consensus is reached. It's unclear whether these taxes would be taken into account through a credit mechanism or through an exemption of the related income. The U.S. could just simply turn off guilty if there was a qualifying income inclusion rule in an entity above the U.S., but that might not make sense if the guilty rate is higher than the IRR rate as Daniel discussed, might happen. For instance, guilty could be 18%, while the IRR would be 15%. And in that case, the U.S. 
may still want to top off the guilty to the extent it's higher than the IR rate. So in, in the example of 18 and 15, the U.S. may want to impose the 3% differential. Now, if a credit approach is taken, it's not clear whether the credit would be subject to the 20% haircut under Section 960D. So that would be something that have to be ironed out. Also, the Green Book specifically says that in applying this Pillar 2 coordination rule, that a, the country-by-country country approach should apply also for this purpose. We've been talking about how guilty is treated in coordination with Pillar 2, but you also have the subpart F regime and how that would be coordinated with Pillar 2. And, it, and there's a contrasting approach taken in the Pillar 2 blueprint for subpart F inclusions, where it says that traditional CFC inclusions rules are applied first, and then any taxes that were paid by an intermediate shareholder, for instance, a U.S. shareholder under the subpart F rules, would be considered when the top company, the top foreign parent, would apply its IRR. Unlike the case we talked about for guilty in a salmon structure where the foreign parent got first dibs on applying its IRR, in the case of subpart F, or rules like that, the U.S. would get first dibs in applying subpart F before the foreign parent applied its IRR. Interestingly, in the Pillar 2 approach, it recommends, for the, in, in the case of these traditional CFC rules like subpart F, that the shareholder level taxes be assigned to the jurisdiction where the underlying income is earned, i.e. the CFC jurisdiction, which again makes the most sense here. Thanks, Doug. We've talked a lot about guilty on this episode and turning to the other side of the coin the green book proposes to repeal the FIDI regime the deduction for certain foreign market sales and services income the green book would replace FIDI with still unspecified r&d proposals though at least one treasury official has suggested perhaps repealing the forced r&d capitalization rule that takes effect next year this was a bit of a surprise when we first saw FIDI repeal in the Made in America tax plan, but perhaps we should not have been shocked given the revenue FIDI repeal would generate, $124 billion over 10 years, according to Treasury's economists, and $224 billion over 11 years, according to the economists at the JCT. That's an attractive target when you're diving for dollars. In addition, the FIDI regime has drawn the ire of the OECD as potentially a non-Nexus compliant patent box and of U.S. treaty partners as an export subsidy, potentially subject to a WTO challenge. Indeed, the Biden administration seems to be conceding this point when it referred to FIDI as an export preference in the Made in America tax plan. While FIDI, unlike the beat and guilty, has not been mentioned as a potential impediment to consensus at the OECD, its repeal could certainly be viewed as an olive branch to its members. On to some of the other proposals in the Green Book. Doug, the Green Book proposes a new 15% minimum book tax applicable to large corporations. Who would this provision apply to? Yeah, so Gary, this would apply to large corporations with worldwide pre-tax book income in excess of $2 billion, only the, the very largest of companies. What's interesting to consider is how this proposal would apply to foreign parented groups. 
Is the $2 billion threshold determined on the basis of worldwide book income of the whole group or just the U.S. group and below? Indications from government panelists has been that the threshold would look just to the U.S. group and below, but we'll, we'll have to see as, as legislation would unfold. But what's probably more certain is that once the threshold is met, that when you apply this book min tax rule, you would only look to book tax income differences of the U.S. group and its COCs. I've heard it said that if Congress adopted a minimum book tax, it would be effectively ceding its authority to non-elected accounting regulators. Could you explain this concern and how would this proposal apply? Sure. As we've said, this minimum tax is based on book income, at least in part comparing book and tax. But because it looks to book income, Congress does not legislate the rules for determining gap in IFRS, then that, that question on that part of the equation is left to the accounting standard boards and regulators. Moreover, it would reverse particular tax incentives that Congress purposely enacted. In fact, in the Green Book description, they've already started to restoring them, some of these tax incentives by saying that they would respect general business credits. And, and what's next? Would bonus depreciation be also allowed because we want investment in intangible property? Arguably, if Congress doesn't like the effects that of the a particular tax expenditures have on revenue collection, they should revisit those from the bottom up instead of top down, like doing it this way. Doug, any other notable international proposals in the Green Book? Yeah, Gary, there, there's a, a couple others that I'll mention. There's a proposal that would extend Section 338H16 principles to dispositions of interest in hybrid entities and changes in entity classification. And these are rules just for applying foreign tax credit limitation. It's very narrow. It's just for the 904 computation. And in, in these cases, you would determine source and character of items in the same manner as if you had a stock sale rather than a, for an asset sale. And what this would achieve is it would convert what normally would be, for instance, guilty basket income for foreign tax credit limitation purposes to passive income. Another interesting proposal in the Green Book is a proposed disallowance of deductions for outbounding jobs while giving a 10% credit for onshoring jobs. This proposal didn't have a lot of detail, for instance, how you determine whether you're decreasing jobs or increasing jobs in the United States or out of the United States. And also by its terms, the proposal does not include capital expenditures, severance pay, and the cost to displace workers. And it's also interesting that the revenue score for the onshoring and offshoring offset each other fully Lastly, there is a proposal in the oil and gas area dealing with dual capacity foreign tax credits. Danielle and Doug, thank you so much for joining us today and to all of you for tuning in. On our next episode of the podcast, we will complete for now our exploration of the Green Book's international tax proposals while taking a deeper dive on an issue that is near and dear to my own heart, the anti-inversion rules. I'll be joined by my friends and colleagues, Steve Massett and Andrew Simmons, 
to discuss how recent congressional proposals and the Green Book proposals would dramatically change the anti-inversion rules and cause many more transactions to fall under their purview. Until our next episode, take care. Thank <laughs> you.